Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Play it again. GameStop shares surge once more. Vaccines versus variants. Moderna and Pfizer trialing adapted serums against new variants. And status update. Big tech must now pay for news content in Australia. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe on what could be another memorable day on Wall Street. Take a look at this. GameStop, the troubled video game retailer, up more than 63% pre-market after rising over 100% in the last hour of trade yesterday. It follows news earlier this week that the company's CFO was either forced out or simply stepped down. I feel compelled to point out, not that you need it, that this is not a normal share price reaction to that kind of news. This is not normal either. This rally was perhaps in part fueled by activist board member Ryan Cohen tweeting out a picture of a McDonald's cup and an ice cream cone. Confused? So am I. Here's a bit of context here. GameStop shares are nowhere near the lofty peaks of one month ago. That said, other meme stocks like AMC, the cinema chain, BlackBerry and Cos headphones have been perking up too, as you can see, to varying degrees. Are we looking at a return of the Redditeers? You remember the social media platform chat stocks, perhaps. But Wall Street, meanwhile, was unfazed yesterday. The Nasdaq bouncing almost 1% and the Dow closing at fresh record highs. A bit of consolidation going on today as global bond yields move higher once again. Asia, though, added to gains. South Korea, higher more higher, actually, than the losses that it made on Wednesday's session. UK stocks higher too, though investors are bracing for a potential corporation tax hike when the government unveils its new budget next week. Money needs to be raised, of course, to pay for COVID financial relief. Speaking of COVID relief, the US House expected to pass Biden's aid package tomorrow and then pass it over to the US Senate. And new numbers justifying that requirement and need once more. Another 730,000 Americans filing for first-time jobless benefits last week. So we go from the jobless jolt to the Reddit redux. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. I know, I can hear you sighing already, and I'm sighing with you, but I'll let you do it first. Um, I tell you what, you know, if you're a retail CEO or perhaps even a, a CEO in the airline space at the moment, you'd be looking at your CFO and thinking, hmm, if he steps down or I remove him, perhaps my stock might rally 160% in the space of three days. I'm joking. It wouldn't. Yeah. This is ridiculous. It's, it's not a normal reaction. And, you know, in, in this story, you have to peel away all this sort of, like, hype you know, message board hype to find what is the fundamental that maybe they're trying to hold on to here, a CFO leaving, the idea of hiring an executive search firm to find the appropriate candidate to maybe help with the digital transformation of the company. Remember, it's a company that has been going through a painful restructuring, closing underperforming stores and sort of changing its business model to satisfy a 21st century gamer, a 21st century um, uh, uh, consumer of, cons- of these sorts of uh, uh, consumer products and gaming products. 
So I can see the fundamental in there, but the but the reaction is just not uh, appropriate for that. It shows you the hysteria, the froth, and the rumor that are involved in some of these stocks. You know, GameStop meme stock. It's not the overall market. Maybe it's maybe it's kind of indicative of froth in the overall market. But this is a whole new beast in and of itself. You and I have talked before about. It reminds me so much of the movie The Wolves of Wall Street, where you have people with great enthusiasm and a phone line who are driving up the price of a stock, um, in many cases for just no reason whatsoever. You know, how do we know what's happening here? Certain people are profiting on it and, and, and pulling novice investors into the game. That is what I really, really worry about here. It's these memes of rocket ships and diamond hands that suddenly are some sort of subliminal signal to buy a stock. You know, that that is not fundamental investing in a stock market. That's gambling, in my view. Yeah, let's melt some of the hype in that, that melting ice cream, quite frankly. Uh, an activist investor, a board member of GameStop, tweeting out pictures like that. I mean, it's very reminiscent of Elon Musk, but Elon Musk is an entirely different character and a different <laughs> person. Um, yeah, I think we all just need to take a step back and uh, try and add some professional behavior like here. It, though? I can't remember a parallel, though. I mean, I'm trying to remember in market recent market history a parallel to to something like this. You know, just regular people driving up a stock with m- maybe no fundamental backing whatsoever. Oh, there was no finance textbook that taught me how to interpret these no, kind either. of trading signals, quite frankly, Christine Romans. You know, I spoke to um, Tom Steyer yesterday, billionaire and yeah. obviously Democratic presidential candidate in, uh, in 2020. And he said all of this, Bitcoin, the meme stock rallies, it's all a rebellion against institutions, against younger generations saying institutions have let them down, Congress has let them down, whatever it is. They don't believe in the institutions in the United States anymore. And I, I look at what we saw from some of the big big American CEOs yesterday saying, get this stimulus bill done. And it reminds me once again, as we look at the job numbers and these more people, thousands more people asking for, for benefit support, Congress can't let them down. You know, and I look at that number that you showed at the beginning of your show, 730,000 first-time unemployment filings. You add in the pandemic unemployment filings, it's more like 1.2. Sure, that's better than it was, but maybe that's held back by weather in Texas and some audits in other states. I mean, there could be reasons why it fell a little bit. And just for a minute here, you know, in economics and statistics, you talk about the level and the direction uh, or the rate of change. You know, the level here is so big, I think it almost makes the the small change over a week, uh, you know, just irrelevant. I mean, 730,000 people, workers filing for the first time for unemployment benefits, 19 million who are receiving some sort of wage replacement from the government, checks from the government for 19 million people. To me, that is just mind boggling every week. And I know that maybe some in Congress look at this as a number salad, you know, which is more of the same of this number salad. It's not. This is a big crisis, record highs in the Dow, a housing market that's still hot, although we'll see what happens with rising interest rates on the housing market. You know, you have this split screen in America where people with a job and with money have had a fantastic year, except for their worries about COVID and health. You have the other part of America that is is working a job that maybe is affected by COVID or they've lost a job. They're worried about their health, their bills, their kids going to school. I mean, it is a real, real one America against another America kind of picture that I see here. And that is what that's what Congress needs to be laser focused here on. Yeah. Reality checks all round, I think, in that conversation, Christine. Great to have you with us. Nice to see you. All right. More on that GameStop rally later in the show when we speak to the co-founder of Thinknum, a company that's helping large and smaller investors monitor social media to find out where the Reddit crowd is headed next. We'll have to see what the algorithm thinks of the ice cream cone. 
and we'll leave that there for now. All right. Progress is being made in the vaccine race. The Johnson & Johnson jab could be available in the United States as early as next week. Meanwhile, Moderna has produced an updated vaccine to combat the South African variant with clinical studies about to begin. CNN medical analyst Dr. Jonathan Rayner joins us now. Dr. Rayner, great to have you on the show. The Johnston Johnson news is great, but I want to set that aside. Phenomenal work being done by these vaccine creators on adjusting their serums to try and tackle some of these worrying variants. Yeah, um, if you think about it, the whole vaccine uh, production has been done at just unprecedented breakneck uh, speed. This new uh, sort of booster shot uh, adjusted for the variants created by Moderna was created in 30 days. So from, from design to address the new variant structure to delivery to the NIH to begin clinical trials in 30 days. Design, manufacture, delivery. Amazing. Uh, and I think we have, you know, this new technology is very, very adaptable. And this is what is we're going to see going forward. I think we'll see yearly booster shots, which like yearly flu shots are custom tailored to the coronavirus uh, uh, variants that are prevalent. And so this is the, this is the way we will adapt. So we have a, be- a benchmark level of immunity that's provided by the initial vaccines that they've created. And then right. exactly to your point, they look at what variant they think is going to be most prevalent in any given year and they give people the booster for that year. Yeah, I th- and I think people should feel very reassured by that. There is data now that suggests that if you've been vaccinated for the original what we call wild type of virus, uh, and you, um, or you've actually had that virus, that even if you acquire one of these new, maybe more aggressive variants, you're probably protected from severe illness or death on the basis of your baseline immunity. And we know that for some of these variants, particularly the UK B117 variant, uh, the RNA vaccines are still quite good and very, very effective at preventing infection or illness. So, uh, but we will need to be vigilant and continue to increase our genomic uh, surveillance to to find these variants and, if necessary, create vaccines to address them. And just very quickly on that point, because there might be people out there saying, well, I've had the AstraZeneca shot or I've not had one of the messenger RNA vaccines, which is, of course, Moderna and Pfizer. Right. What's the likelihood of being able to take a booster shot that's from a Moderna or a Pfizer, so the mRNA base, even if you've had an initial vaccine shot from one that isn't the same? Yeah, we'll learn about that in uh, clinical uh, studies. Right. There are basically going to be several ways to do this with a dedicated booster shot, with giving another shot of whatever vaccine you've already received, or maybe even with what we call a multivalent uh, uh, vaccine, which is basically targeted at multiple uh, virus uh, um, variants. So we'll, there'll be a lot of, of innovation and, and, and new vaccines a year from now uh, than there are right now. It's just incredible science. It's uh, yeah. it's fascinating, isn't it? 30 days to create this adjusted serum as well. It's just phenomenal. Um, I've never been so excited to read updates from 
the New England Journal of Medicine as well. But obviously, yeah. the Israelis have been so quick about getting vaccines out there. We're starting to get a sense of just how potent these vaccines are now in the real world. And, and great news from that peer-reviewed study, not only about the potency or the efficacy of of vaccines, but also potentially on one of the critical issues, which is prevention of transmission. Dr. Reina, what do you think on this? Yeah, so, you know, Israel uh, has vaccinated an enormous uh, proportion of their country. More than uh, uh, half of the Israeli population has been vaccinated. And now that gives us a giant real world laboratory to understand in the real world how well these vaccines work. So uh, in the New England Journal now, we see a, a study from Israel uh, and they also have a very, very well-developed electronic medical record database, uh, a study of over 600,000 Israelis vaccinated. What we see is very reassuring. The data out of Israel shows that the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and this is an environment which has a lot of the UK B117 variant, was 94% effective at preventing illness and 92% effective at preventing severe illness, which exactly parallels the results from the much smaller 40,000 patient clinical trial. So we know in the real world, with the more aggressive variants, that this vaccine is super effective, very, very reassuring. And we're also seeing that these vaccines do also, uh, in large measure, prevent transmission of the virus. So we're not just preventing illness, we're also preventing uh, acquisition and transmission. And this is what we're going to need to actually put this fire out more completely and get back to our normal lives. Absolutely. That's the news that we're really waiting for. Dr. Raina, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. All right, Australia has passed the law that led to its feud with Facebook, the social media network, and Google will now pay for news that appears on their platforms. Facebook's initial opposition to the law led it to block news on its site. Brian Stelter joins me now, and the scramble now continues to uh, try and reestablish those news, but with caveats. Brian, you and I said this is not just about Australia. The EU is normally first and on the front foot as far as regulation is concerned. The United States also watching this very closely, at least from what you're hearing, it seems. Yes, in Australia, we will see news publishers restored by this weekend. Facebook says those links are coming back online. And it admits it went too far uh, by removing police and fire and rescue and health information as well in the midst of the standoff with the Australian government. But now that is in the past. The Australian bill has passed the parliament and has become law. And uh, other countries and parts of the globe are going to follow. We know in Canada, in France, in Germany, in the United States, there's real interest in following up on this. For, uh, Facebook says it wants to work with publishers. Now, that's code for we want to strike financial deals with you, but on our terms, we do not want to be forced into it by government regulation. So Facebook said overnight that it's in talks with publishers in France and Germany. They say they're going to spend a billion dollars in the next three years, just like Google on relationships with publishers. But that billion dollar number, Julia, is really just a starting point in a negotiation. Uh, we are going to see similar proposals in other countries. Uh, the head of the News Media Alliance here in the United States, a trade group representing newspapers, told me it is now time to bring this fight to the U.S. Uh, he and many other publisher representatives want to see Facebook and Google pony up with more money. Uh, and I think what we've now seen is the first inning of this game. You could look at this, though, and say we've now gone from a situation where news is prolific on social media platforms like Facebook, and I use them as an example, but it's, it's obviously broader than that, where it's fake news, news of all kinds, 
and it's creating a problem where the sources of those news have, in many cases, gone out of business or struggled to survive. Now we're in a situation where Facebook gets to choose the news based on the mm. relationships, the financial relationships that it strikes with these news providers. I can see problems with this too, Brian. I think that's right. You're hitting on this issue that Facebook is making deals with big, major media companies. Uh, this was a bill in Australia led in large part by Rupert Murdoch and his uh, company called the News Corporation. And uh, there's a lot of concern about Facebook saying, OK, we're going to pay uh, X, Y and Z. We're not going to pay A, B or C. And what happens to the startup that wants help, believes it needs help to compete in the marketplace, but doesn't get a deal with Facebook or Google? Uh, it, it, this is a strange new world we are heading into where some of these publishers are going to get tens of millions of dollars from technology companies and others may very well get zero. Hmm. Brian, I'd love to see what the traffic was like on the Facebook platform during that blackout period in Australia and whether news was really that insignificant. What was it yeah. they said? Less than 4% of what people look That's at on their feeds. That's what they always feeds. claim. They always yeah. claim people don't really spend much time looking at news on Facebook. But, you know, unfortunately, we don't know for sure how users reacted to that ban. That data is gold. Facebook, if you're watching, please release it. I'll be waiting. <laughs> we could be waiting a while. Brian, thank you. Brian Stalter, great to have you on. All right, still to come on First Move. China's Huawei hopes for a fresh start under President Biden after being blacklisted by President Trump. Of course, I'm joined by the company's U.S. representative next and State of the Union with the federal minimum wage hike, a major problem for President Biden's COVID relief bill. We're joined by the head of America's biggest union for his take. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The Biden administration's relationship with China is slowly starting to take shape, and one company with much at stake is Huawei. The company denies its technology can be used by China to spy on other nations. If you remember back in 2018, the CFO of the company and the company itself was accused by the U.S. of bank fraud and evasion of sanctions against Iran. After that, the U.S. restricted American suppliers like Google, Qualcomm and Intel from supplying the company. So where does it we go from here? The company, which denies wrongdoing, is proposing a new zero-trust approach to help reset broader relations. Andy Purdy is Chief Security Officer for Huawei Technologies USA. Andy, always great to have you on the show. Let's start with the administration first. Have you had any form of outreach from the administration? Clearly they've been busy, but have you heard anything? No, we haven't, and, and we haven't reached out yet. The senior officials in the various departments haven't been named yet. Obviously, the administration has uh, mm. bigger fish to fry with the pandemic and the economy and so forth. And in fact, they're leading a major effort to improve America's cyber defenses. So that's all for the good. As you point out, Commerce Department needs a new head. Justice Department needs a new head. And they're obviously going to play very much into future relations. Does personality matter? Presidential personality, Andy. President Biden, very different person from former President Trump. Well, I'm not sure whether the personality matters quite as much, but I think what the Biden administration has said, they want to emphasize more of a multilateral approach, whereas the Trump administration had more of America's number one and you have to do, do what we say. Um, also, I think the Biden administration is going to take a different approach. The Trump administration took a whole lot of issues, including issues relating to Huawei, and they bundled them together and then used those to try to negotiate geopolitical issues with China. We're hoping the Biden administration, and we expect they will, will separate issues out one by one 
and try to look at each issue in terms of what's in the best interest of the United States. And so in terms of what matters to us, hopefully we can get our chief financial officer released and hopefully American companies can sell to Huawei. They depend on Huawei for about $12 billion a year in, in the procurement, which affects at least 40,000 American jobs. So we hope for the benefit of the American workers and the American semiconductor industry that uh, those conversations can be held. You're basically saying you became a pawn in the broader trade negotiations. And actually what you'd just like to be is negotiating directly with the U.S. government and not have conversations about Huawei sort of tied into broader discussions about whatever the relationship between the United States and China politically looks like going forward. Well, that's exactly right. And we don't want the U.S. government trying to talk Huawei issues through the China government. We would like to talk with the U.S. government directly, which has been the traditional pattern uh, for U.S. Uh, issues like this. It's complicated. You mentioned we have the CFO who you'd like to see released. We have the fact that you can't sell into the United States right now. Also, as I mentioned in the introduction, U.S. companies can't provide you with supplies because you're on the entity list. And actually just the process of getting you removed from that entity list is 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 complicated. You have to prove the remedial action as far as any concerns over the sanctions is concerned, but also that you're no longer a national security threat, something that you guys have denied all along. Can you provide anything new to this administration to say, look, you got it wrong? Well, let me say this, that, that, that our ability to sell in the United States is not a major factor. We realize that law would have to be changed for us to sell. Regarding the entity list, the, the ability of American companies to sell to us, the Commerce Secretary would have to make a finding that we did not pose a threat to the U.S. communications sector. What the U.S. is doing to make America safer in cyberspace and to address real cyber supply chain risks, such as the major solar winds breach, America is going to be much better prepared to know how to have risk mitigation, how to have transparency. And they have to recognize that nation states have the ability to hack into everybody's stuff, even without permission. So as America moves forward with that, we hope that we can have conversations about some of the things the U.S. learns about risk mitigation and transparency. And so we can have talks about how we can use those kinds of techniques uh, so we might have a chance, uh, at, but at least so that American companies can sell to us, because we don't see that as a as national security issue. They're not selling us sensitive technology. So we hope for the sake of the 40,000 or more American jobs, they will uh, allow American companies to sell to us before too long. I mean, the Biden White House has already described Huawei as an untrusted vendor. So they're already saying, look, they have zero trust in you effectively. Talk to me about the idea that, and you've written an op-ed on this, that you're OK with that. You're OK with this idea of everybody looking at everybody else and saying, look, I have zero trust in you. And we have to verify because I think it's a great idea. But critics will say it's not just about you as a company. This requires the Chinese government to also step up and say, look, we'll information share too, and we'll meet you at least halfway. And I'm not sure the skeptics buy that. So it's a couple things that, that's like moving pieces. So Ann Newberger of the National Security Council is leading the effort in response to solar winds to help make America safer working with the private sector, help have greater supply chain risk. The Biden administration working multilaterally with allies can work together because it's not just about the equipment suppliers in the supply chain, as solar wind shows. It's also about the telecom and mobile operators. So working together to have standards, conformance product uh, programs, independent testing of products, greater visibility by governments into what the various companies are doing uh, and what we see in Germany and the uh, European Union, those kinds of models, I think, are going to help provide some models that uh, hopefully the United States can uh, learn something from. <laughs>
Um, and are you prepared for this to take years? Is Huawei prepared for this to take years? And can you survive years in the interim if the relationship between the United States and Huawei doesn't change from this moment? Well, we are really taking a very much of a long haul uh, approach to this. As I said, we, we don't have immediate concerns about our ability to sell in the United States. The bigger issue about what they call decoupling is if the U.S. insists that American companies, you know, the hundreds of semiconductor companies that want to sell to us and others, if those companies that want to buy are forced for the long term to have to go to China or go to other places to get those technologies, those jobs for America will be lost forever. So I think in the shorter term, Decisions are going to have to be made, not because it affects Huawei. Decisions are going to be, have to be made about American jobs in the American industry, which President Biden just signed an executive order trying to promote the semiconductor industry because of the shortage, which is a great thing. And he's trying to promote the competitiveness of the American industry. And that's a great thing also. But we must not cut off our hand despite our face and hurt American jobs when we're trying to hurt China through hurting Huawei. That would be a big mistake. Yeah, and there'll be a lot of people saying a 100-day review of this doesn't work quick enough, and certainly the industry is saying this. Andy, on, on a personal level, there will be people looking at this, and I'm sure they've thought it when we've chatted in the past as well, and said, why don't you just come and work for an American company? Because your life could be a lot easier if you were caught in the middle of a, a bigger battle right now and working for a company like, like Huawei. What's your answer it, to it, that? The answer is I've been very fortunate that I have the ability to work within the U.S., and I've been to 26 countries for Huawei, a number of meetings with governments around the world, many governments that don't want the U.S. to know that I talk to them. I believe I'm promoting a safer cyberspace. When I promote the kinds of things that Ann Newberg is doing out of the National Security Council and objective standards, independent conformance, uh, zero trust type concepts, I think those are going to promote a safer cyberspace. And we need to go beyond that. And hopefully the Biden administration will do this. The international norms of cyber conduct, we need to build those and we need to get governments to sign those norms. We need to get companies to sign those norms and hold folks accountable if they don't follow the international rules of the road. So I feel good about, although it may seem uh, counterintuitive, that I feel like I'm helping to promote a safer cyberspace, even though I work for Huawei. <laughs> you said it, my friend, not me. Uh, I have to say, you've just reiterated what we heard from the FireEye CEO. And actually, I couldn't agree more. We all need to work together on this and have some standards. Andy, great to chat to you. Uh, we'll keep in touch. Andy Purdy, Thank Chief you. Security Officer for Huawei Technologies USA. Thank you, sir. The market opens next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are open, and as expected, we're seeing fresh weakness for tech stocks. It's a continuation of the intense volatility we've seen in this interest rate-sensitive sector in the past week as bond yields move higher across the globe. So nervousness moves with it. Take a look at what we're seeing for U.S. bond yields right now. We've got yields remaining near one-year highs for both the 10-year and the 30-year bond. And from rates to Reddit... GameStop still going strong after a tasty tweet from the company's CEO. More on that in just a few minutes. Economically sensitive sectors like cruise lines, banks, energy and airlines all gaining too. Deutsche Bank is raising the entire airline sector to a buy. It sees a travel boom ahead once vaccination rates truly take off. Good news, of course, it would be for workers in that sector in particular. Now, the U.S. House of Representatives is poised to pass President Biden's $1.9 trillion relief bill Friday. 
but a provision calling for the federal minimum wage to rise gradually to $15 remains a stumbling block. There's still a debate about whether it can be included in a bill passed using the budget reconciliation process, and it faces fierce opposition from Republicans and even some Senate Democrats. Joining us now is Richard Trunker. He's president of the AFL-CIO Federation of Labour Unions. His organisation represents 12.5 million workers. Richard, great to have you with us on the show. Talk to me about your views on the minimum wage. Should this be included in this bill? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Julia. Uh, And look, uh, the minimum wage in the United States right now is $7.25. It hasn't been increased since 2009. That's 12 years ago. Uh, If it had been indexed for inflation, the minimum wage in this country right now would be $24 an hour. Uh, Workers have been patient for long enough. It's time that it was included. Uh, That raise would affect 27 million workers in the United States. It would help them. Uh, It would also help the economy. It'll take people out of poverty, and it will give workers some sense of security, economic security. So it's way past time that it be done. And it's time for the Congress to pass it. And I don't care how they do it, but it has to get done now. The Congressional Budget Office did an analysis, though, and said it could cost one and a half million jobs. Richard, do you think they've got the analysis wrong? Clearly, for some small businesses, this would this would be a struggle. I don't think we should deny that. Is that a price worth paying? What's your view on that? Well, well, first of all, we think they're absolutely wrong, uh, that the assumptions that they use were at the, the far end uh, of the extreme. Look, we've, we've done a number of minimum wage increases. And every time that we do a minimum wage increase, somebody says, this could cost a job here or there. And it's never been that way at all. It's always increased. This is going to increase payrolls so that workers can buy things, create demand, and it will create more jobs. That's been what's happened with every one of the increases in the minimum wage. And this one will be no different. Would increased union power help Richard, I remember President Biden on the campaign trail saying, um, I've got the quote, best friend Labour's ever had in the White House. I know you were in a meeting where he said, look, unions are going to have more power. I've got a chart going back to the 1980s where around 20 percent of workers were unionized. Fast forward to today and it's around 10 percent. And actually, I haven't got the breakdown there. But for African-Americans, for the minorities in this in this country, it was far higher back then. And it's come down significantly, too. Would higher, greater union power, protect workers better in this country? Well, first of all, there's absolutely no doubt about that, Julia. And in this country right now, unions have the highest approval rating that we've had in the last 50 years. Uh, MIT did a study and workers said that 60 million workers said they'd join a union today if they were given the opportunity. Look, this president, uh, President Biden, has said that He is going, the policy of the United States is going to be to encourage collective bargaining. We've never had a president say that before or do that before. Only through collective bargaining can we begin to attack the massive inequality that exists in this economy and in this country right now. And that growing inequality threatens not only democracy itself, but the system itself. Collective bargaining can give workers the power they need to negotiate with their employers and get a bigger share uh, of the wealth that they produce, thus decreasing inequality, 
as we did in this country in the couple of decades after World War II, and having a more solid economy that grows from the base up rather than just at the top. Yeah, there has to be a balance here somewhere. Perhaps the most pivotal, at least for the last several decades, is a battle going on in Alabama between Amazon and workers at one of their warehouses there that are going to vote on whether or not to unionize. Would you like President Biden to come out and and be quite blunt on this and say to Amazon, guys, don't put pressure on these people not to do it. And to to the workers say, look, if you think this will help you, you guys go for it. Because there's two aspects to this. And, you know, there is some press in the United States that's saying President Biden perhaps is shying away from making a strong enough comment about what this could mean, because it would set one heck of a precedent. Well, first of all, there's been no question that President Biden uh, is the most pro-union president that I've seen in my lifetime, Julia. There's yeah, no but question. Yeah, more so. <laughs> well, I guess I guess it's not gone as very far being pro-union if you, you look at those you charts. Be more so as well. But he is the most pro-union president we've seen, and here's what he's doing. He's done more in the first five weeks of his administration to help workers than we've seen over the last several decades. And he's making sure that it truly is the policy of the United States to encourage collective bargaining. And he's told Amazon, that's the policy of the United States. Everybody ought to have a a right to join a union and you shouldn't be trying to prevent them by doing the things that they're doing. Look what Amazon is doing. They're lying. They're threatening. They're holding workers in sessions where they bombard them with anti-union stuff. And that's the law of the land in the United States. And President Biden has said he's going to change that law. Our, Our labor laws, Julia, are over 100 years old in this country. They're antiquated and they don't work. And instead of being used to help workers increase their wages and benefits, they're actually used as a tool to decrease wages and benefits. He's going to reverse that and help us pass the PRO Act so that every worker, every worker, including all those workers at Amazon, Uber and everywhere else, have the right to join a union and get a fair shake for the wages, for the work that they do every day. Wow. Well, he certainly has a strong support in you, Richard. And Amazon has an open invite to come and defend themselves from your uh, your accusations there. Stay in touch. We'll see how it goes and we'll check back in a few months and see what progress. Richard Tromka, the president of the AFL-CIO. So thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks, Julia. All Thanks, right. Thank you. Breaking news on former President Trump's tax returns. The Manhattan District Attorney has obtained tax records belonging to former President Trump, according to sources familiar with the matter. They're said to include millions of pages of documents. Prosecutors fought for 17 months to obtain the records sought in a grand jury subpoena. The grand jury has been looking into allegations of hush money payments. All right, after the break, an offer inspired by Amazon. The data provider Thinknum is now using its muscle to help start up hedge funds. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Level the playing field. That's the new mission of web scraping data provider Thinknum, the company that quickly built a tool to provide its hedge fund and investment banking clients the most mentioned stocks on Reddit, is now offering a program called Thinknum Spark 
for smaller investors. It's designed for new funds with less than $50 million in assets. Joining us now, Justin Zen, co-founder of Thinknum Alternative Data. Justin, great to have you on the show once again. Our regular viewers will recognize you. Um, we're going to talk about what's happened, what sparked the development of Spark in a moment. But just for my audience very quickly, just explain what you do at Thinknum. Sure thing. Thanks for having me back, Julia. Um, at Thinknum, we provide what's called alternative data from the web. So most investors, they traditionally use like market data, stock prices to make buy-sell decisions. Um, over the past five, 10 years, uh, business activity has gone online, right? Companies are hiring people online. They sell products online. They uh, list out where their locations are online. So we build technology that uh, collects and organizes all of these uh, online data trails. And that provides a very actionable insights about which company is doing well. And so actionable that in light of the GameStop, AMC rallies, you quickly put together uh, a program that would scrape and have a look at mentions of these stocks across the Internet, places like Reddit, and give people just a bit of heads up on perhaps what might be rallying next. You came on our show and talked about it, and I believe you were then bombarded with requests. You and I also had a debate about how much the product costs and whether you were providing this to bigger hedge funds or whether just the little retail guys would have access to the product. Talk to me about what happened after our interview. Yeah, sure. Um, so after I came on the show, we got uh, well over a thousand inquiries into the data. Um, and there were quite a, a number of inquiries from uh, people that were just starting their own funds. And then, uh, you know, uh, we did a lot of calls with uh, uh, kind of these aspiring investors. And, um, you know, we realized that price was uh, becoming a t deterrent into uh, whether or not they could use the product. So we were inspired to launch um, Thinknum Spark, which we're announcing, and it's going to allow uh, people that are just starting investment funds um, with less than 50 million AUM to be able to get uh, discounts to alternative data. And they, could, they also have the ability to use it now and pay later. So we're able to grow with our clients. And we were inspired by um, Amazon and uh, what AWS, AWS offers to startups. Um, they helped us a lot out in the early years in starting our company. So um, this is our own version of that. That's interesting. So AWS gave you effectively a discount rate for being a startup and you, I guess, have remained a client of theirs as a result because they, they bought your loyalty. Justin, this is great because we did, we did debate whether the big players out there, they already have this big data advantage. They can afford it. And for the smaller players, and you clearly found that after we discussed it, they were like, I'd love to have some kind of advantage. And I simply can't get a leg up here. It's personal for you, too, because, you know, as someone who's built a business and started out, it's tough. Yeah, um, you know, um, I come from a very humble background personally. Um, I washed dishes and waited tables for 10 years. And, you know, in high school, uh, Princeton University gave me a shot. They gave me a full ride scholarship. And obviously, when we were starting uh, ThinkNum, uh, AWS did the same thing. So we definitely understand uh, what it's like to uh, try to start something, especially investing, which is so serious, right? Um, you need to. Uh, do research, do due diligence, and you know we're just trying to do our best to level that playing field. Yeah, Justin, and I, I appreciate um, how swiftly you reacted once again to try and provide 
um, a source and a tool that actually everyone or at least smaller funds can get access to. Just an out of interest, can I put your um, system to work, please, and ask you in light of the rally that we've seen in GameStop again over the last 24 to 48 hours, have we seen a pickup in mentions on social media in the run-up to this? Because we've had a quiet period and now it's gone gangbusters again. What does your data tell us? Yeah, sure. So if you look at the data, um, you'll see that over the past uh, week, really, the uh, number of occurrences for GameStop has uh, has increased uh, well over 40%. Um, and obviously yesterday, uh, kind of uh, given the, the huge run-up, um, uh, you see that uh, increase about 400%. So, um, you know, that's why it's, import- it's more important than ever for investors to uh, track uh, what is going on with, uh, you know, not just uh, Reddit, but alternative data in general. Um, it's here to stay. Okay, so I think we were showing the uh, the share price there, but basically what you just said is there was a forty percent rise in mentions and data collection in the run up to this most recent rally. There was a forty percent uh, increase in the uh, amount that GameStop was talked on. Um, right. On, so it was actually quiet for you know it was quiet for a couple of weeks. Um, the stock was relatively flat, but uh, recently, which you know. Um, may coincide with some other factors as well. Um, you did see that chatter really pick up in the past couple of days. Yeah, there you go. That's the chart I was looking for. Good work, team. Um, and we're just seeing that now, a pickup in occurrences. And of course, that pickup once again in the stock price, um, just on a daily basis for these moves. Justin, great to have you back. Good to hear a bit more about you and what you're doing as well. And um, yeah, great to have you on the show. Thank you for that. And for the data as well. How exciting. Justin Zen, co-founder of Thinknum Alternative Data. Thank you. All right. After the break. Goodbye, CBS. All access. Hello, Paramount Plus. Star Trek and Sport. The latest salvo in the streaming wars. Welcome back to First Move. Paramount Plus is a new streaming service set to launch next week in the United States and in Latin America. Frank Pelota joins us now with all the details. Frank, another one. I can't take any more, but tell us what's going to be available on Paramount+. Plus. This was like my eighth streaming three-hour event. I, I swear to God, oh. if I have to do one more, I'm going to become... The next streaming service is going to be Frank+. Plus. I'm serving it for $4.99 <laughs> to $5.99. Anyway, Paramount Plus, it's it's actually, as much as I joke around, I really like its product. I think it's really interesting. Paramount, for those who don't know, is obviously the company from Viacom CBS. This is their streaming offering. And they said that they have a mountain, mountain, because Paramount is a mountain, um, of entertainment. And uh, this service will have everything from Paramount Films, so think Mission Impossible, Indiana Jones, Forrest Gump, The Godfather, things of that nature, to a bunch of shows from CBS and CBS Studios. So you're going to have a revival of Frasier. You're going to have shows based on uh, old movies like Love Story. And you're also going to have kids content, Nickelodeon, a new Rugrat show. So you're going to have all this stuff for about $5.99 without ads and $9.99 with ads. And they're hoping that this can bring people in and help them get to about uh, about 75 million subscribers by 2024 so that they can compete with the Disney Plus and Netflixes of the world. 
Yeah, I was going to say, actually, based on that prediction, 75 million subscribers. I mean, Disney Plus just blew away all expectations in terms of how quickly they added. Talk to me specifically about the movies, though, because obviously HBO Max threw down the gauntlet saying, look, we're going to allow movies to go into the cinemas. We're also going to be able to um, have you stream them at home at the same time if you want to. Bit of a difference in how Paramount's handling this. Perhaps a bit of a gamble, too. So Paramount CEO last night came on as well as the other CEOs of CBS and Showtime and all these other guys. And he said, we are big believers in the theatrical release. However, he did mention that big movies like the next Mission Impossible film and A Quiet Place Part 2, which is a horror film, are going to hit Paramount Plus 45 days after their release. That is much shorter than the traditional 75 to 90 day theatrical window we are used to. But it is much more than the number zero, which is what HBO Max is saying. But remember, HBO Max said 2021's film slate. They did not say the permanent change. So they might go back next year. They might not. We are yet to be seen. But what Paramount is kind of saying and what Viacom CBS is saying is that this battle between streaming and traditional ways of getting your entertainment, the battle is a false choice. That's what Sherry Redstone, the chairwoman (laughs) of Viacom CBS, said last night, and that they want to be both and they want Paramount Plus to be both. I mean, it's less of a choice in a pandemic world because... A lot of people aren't going to the cinema. A lot of people are afraid. So to your point, you can make these decisions now. The question is, what holds or what readjusts? I mean, even on, you know, a 30 to 45 day period post-pandemic, I guess all bets are off for all of these guys. The question is, how do you choose or do you just add another one because it's only another $5 or however many dollars it is? These things all add up. Yeah, that's the problem. It, $5 here, $7 there, $15 there. That adds up. And before you know it, you're kind of paying as much as you were paying for cable. Exactly. So, like, you're kind of, yeah, you're kind of in a situation <laughs> where like audiences have to figure out what really works for them. You know, for me personally, I really like the content on HBO Max and Disney Plus. Those are musts for me. Netflix, I have like a love-hate relationship with sometimes. And it's kind of like the mafia. Every time I'm out, it pulls me back in with Bridgerton or Queen's Gambit. And a lot of people are starting to go, a lot of services, I should say, are going AVOD, which is ad-supported. And things like Peacock, where you can get it for free, but you're getting less content for a lesser price. So this is the big question that every single Hollywood company is going to ask themselves, how can we offer it? How much can we offer it for? And how big of an audience can we get? I've got to say goodbye. Frank, price of um, Frank Plus? Uh, uh, $5.99 with oh, ads. You should have said priceless, my friend. I was giving it to you there, Frank Plus. Well, I'm being realistic. I got, I got rent to pay for it. I've got to go. Thank you, Frank. All right, that's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.